Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Agitators Anonymous, episode 91. I am Alan Averill, just a singer in a heavy metal band trying to make some sense of the things. Well, that confused me, etc., etc. Support the show at www.patreon.com slash Alan Averill. All sorts of other interesting bits and pieces, demos, songs, rehearsals, that kind of thing, etc., etc. As we get nearer and nearer to the 100 mark, and I'm still in season one. Who knew? Well, I knew. I told you that on episode one that we would still be in a form of the same bleeding season, as they say. Anyway, episode 91 is a chat with a comedian called Leo Curse. Um, Leo is a rather vociferous and outspoken opponent of cancel culture, um, a supporter of free speech, pretty famous for not only his award-winning comedy, um, but his hilarious takes and takedowns. And you've probably seen him on terrestrial TV, even on those kind of talking head debates about you know, does cancel culture exist around comedy and what constitutes free speech, this kind of thing. Um, and also on his YouTube channel, and I no doubt if you've got a certain kind of algorithm, he pops up all the time. You may have seen his contributions to podcast of the Lotus Eaters. He's been on Kurtz Metzger's podcast, all sorts of other things. It's a pretty interesting chat. And Leo is an affable dude. And I really had a good time talking to him. And hopefully we'll be able to get a few other interesting and odd people outside of the remit and world of metal and music to come onto the podcast uh, in the coming months. It was just merely, um, I happened to be watching something, he popped up next, and I thought, ah, that was pretty funny. And I think I'd just been in Scotland as well, and thought to myself, well, goddamn, if I can't ask a Scotsman about what the hell is going on up there, and all that kind of thing, so... Here it is without further ado. This is Leo Curse. Recording in progress. There you go. Hello, sir. How are you? We'll do this all again. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, well, surviving, surviving. Um, I just sort of set myself that up before, which won't make any difference now, but I was going to just sort of might as well start into all this kind of stuff um, without much of a preamble, but we sort of, I sort of was saying to you in the email thread when we were exchanging emails that the sort of comedy world and the music world, at least with heavy metal sort of for me, over, overlapped a bit, but some of the things that we saw coming in relation to metal arrived a couple of years later into comedy. So like 15, 20 years ago, we began to see cancel culture stuff slipping into metal, um, mainly at the behest of middle-class punks who sort of moved into our scene and sort of went... Right. What, what, were people, what were people getting cancelled for? Um, well, what was happening basically, in my opinion, was that um, heavy metal was sort of traditionally working class and punk, mm. in my opinion, was sort of more middle-class, college-educated. And there was a moment in the 90s where punk was pretty musically redundant and metal, or black metal, whatever you want to call it, was, wasn't. And a lot of people gravitated sideways into metal and then went, well, look at these idiots, how can we educate them? And that's kind of where <laughs> that, That's kind of how I see it. And so it sort of, yeah. that sort of happened. And we started to see, at least in metal, like in the mid-2000s, and the late 2000s calls for bands to be cancelled because, you know, I remember the, there, there was, of course, the extreme metal flirtation with nationalism and stuff on some level, but a lot of it was just basically for being extreme, quote unquote. And so as it sifted into comedy, because there's very little overlap. That's, that's so weird. I mean, metal, metal is a sort of um, a genre, like a, an art that is, is based on being extreme, extreme noise, you know, extreme. I mean, like you say, there's obviously some pretty unsavory political flirtation certainly maybe more in, in the 70s and stuff where, where i guess like screwdriver and people like that yeah, but, yeah. Um, but yeah it's like you know it's it, it's an extreme it's a real release of all that sort of anger and fury but in a healthy way yeah and i think that well that's kind of in my opinion sort of something that went missing along the way and uh, it's kind of like i remember like i said our we have a sort of common mate steve hughes you know and yeah. Steve, Steve used to play in my band 20 years ago. He stood in for a while and he was in this iconic band in the 80s. And the stuff mm. that he was warning the comedy scene of happening, he'd been, we'd of course been ringing the bell in the metal scene 15, 20 years ago. You yeah. know? But it's kind of weird how it kind of just shifted sideways. And now when we watch podcasts with you guys talking about what's happening in comedy, we sort of, have, sort of saw a vague um, shadow of that 10, 15 years ago. You know? It's kind of very yeah. strange. Yeah, and it's weird how it manifests itself, and uh, not just you know good comedians like Alistair Williams getting getting cancelled and you know really being unable to to find venues to to perform at, uh, and also getting cancelled from from YouTube, but yeah. also just in the way comedians think and act now. Um, so I was at I was at a comedy club with uh, my mate Nico, who does uh, the three speech podcast with me, yeah. and um, another another comedian. So Nico's black and another black comedian came up to him and said, uh, Nico, the optics in your Twitter look, uh, look far right or look right wing. And Nico's like, when Nico, Nico's just, you know, his family, he's got, he's, he's got family, he's got kids, daughters. Yeah. So he worries about, he worries about the stuff that's going to affect them, obviously yeah. as you would as a parent. Um, so, you know, and he's quite, he's got some, you know, traditional family value stuff and no, like, you know, he's very, is a very open and accepting person. But just the fact that comedians are now thinking, like using using the term optics, which you know previously would be used by a government spin doctor or yeah. somebody working in branding for a large corporation, and now you've got these artists, comedians, 
um, musicians are supposed to speak from the heart, supposed to speak their, their own personal truth, uh, have a raw, unfiltered honesty. I mean, personally, that's what I think, you know, if, if you're going to go see a musician, you're, you're not expecting it to be focus group tested. No. Um, but for comedians why do you think have, this, have this attitude of this carefully stage-managed persona and making sure you're not saying anything that could be offensive to, to any particular group, um, it's, it's a kind of worrying trend. It, it puts so many filters between the sort of the person and the, and the audience. Well, but why? Why? I mean, I have my sort of opinions about why that might have happened in metal, as I said, or in extreme music. And I think some of it is to do with a sort of middle class, um, you know, sort of post college attitude moving sideways into into what was once a working class sort of uh, mm. pursuit or release. But I see something maybe similar happened in comedy in the sense that because comedy became so huge it went from underground sellers to literally playing to 10 15,000 people many people saw mm -hmm. that and went oh i could do that but there were people who a weren't funny or didn't understand that comedy thrives in dark places and that um yeah. middle class sort of you know yoga mat comedy it, that's not where it thrives and then those people of course want to impose those sort of values onto the system that they've now decided belongs to them. That's kind of how it looks to me from the outside. Yeah, I mean, there was, uh, in the 80s, I mean, what you say is correct, comedy's traditionally been a sort of working class pursuit. Um, it's not being recognised by the Arts Council, and yeah. it's, um, you know, you go around work, working men's clubs um, yeah, yeah. in the north of England and whatever, doing, doing clubs like that. And it became, um, you know, w with the move movement for alternative comedy. Not that I'm saying, not, I'm, I'm not working class myself, I'm, I'm posh as fuck. But, um, like, when alternative comedy came about in the 80s, and you had Ben Elton and all these, you know, yeah. college-educated college uh, comedians, the Mary Whitehouse experience in the, in the 90s and stuff. Uh, yeah. So, you know, David Baddiel and all the rest of it. So it became, it became more meta, it became more uh, self-referential. And became more, uh, you know, less raw, less sort of one note, direct uh, comedy, and became smarter, basically, yeah. which, which is a which is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, Stuart Lee, for all his faults, very funny comedian. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it meant that you know these people did start to impose their values on the the values of um, traditional working class comedians, and obviously a lot of the, the sort of traditional working class comedians got sort of pushed to the pushed to the side, not cancelled, and you know, Jim Davidson, Bernard yeah. Manning, all the rest of it became, you know, Bobby Davro became uh, much less employable than they used to be. Um, and I think in a lot of cases, it wasn't, it was a sort of misinterpretation or a misunderstanding of the of the material. So, for example, um, comedians doing mother-in-law jokes, yeah. you know, that's seen as some sort of misogynist, uh, they hate women, it's like, uh, you know, you're punching down at this poor woman. It's quite, it's totally the opposite. You know, working class families, um, the the new husband would, uh, you know, the, the new husband and wife wouldn't have enough money to buy their own house straight away. So they'd go and live with the wife's family. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the guy, the mother-in-law, as the matriarch of the household yeah. would be calling the shots and, and bullying the the husband. Mm. So these mother-in-law jokes were just they were they're kicking back, they were you know punching back at that matriarchal matriarchal power yeah. that the mother-in-law had. And they weren't they weren't um you know even though they're mean uh, mm. you know that was the sort of that's where it was coming from. It wasn't yeah. punching down, it was punching up. Right. This whole notion of punching down is uh you know is something that because Society is now sort of systemically woke. Every aspect of society, yeah, yeah. society is woke. You even, you even saw it in the you know the, the, the legal system is is woke now. Yeah, uh, people got um, 
got were um, uh, innocent of a crime um, yesterday, pulling down the Colston statue. That they definitely, they definitely did. You know, from a legal point of view, they definitely did it. But because it's seen as you know being on the right side of history, the system sort of got them off. Yeah. But um, because everything's uh, systemically woke, there's this safetyism. Yeah. Um, so people, you see it with everything, you know, face masks. You've got to wear a face mask for my safety. Uh, you've got to restrict your freedoms for, for my safety. And yeah. it's the same with comedy. This joke uh, makes me feel unsafe. And previously, you know, 50 years ago, um, you know, health and safety meant, uh, you know, scaffolding falling on you or something yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. Now it means, you know, getting butt hurt because somebody's done a joke. Um, so, uh, and because freedom, you know, my freedoms end where they impinge on your safety. This this sort of uh, blossoming, this uh, inflation of uh, safetyism, uh, you know, restricts restricts freedoms. And this this sort of safetyism that's really throttling a lot of comedy at the moment. People have to you know second guess themselves. There's a lot of self censorship going on. But that's but that's really because, I mean, it just seems to be. I mean, just to go back to something you sort of said at the start of that point is that I'm a I'm a fan of Stuart Lee. But if you take Stuart Lee, he's still anti-establishment, and that's what I find interesting. And, and, and is and one sort of I think it's interesting to dig down to is that the '80s comedians, essentially, if you look back at the Rick Mails and the people like that, Adrian Edmondson, they were anti-establishment. Whereas, <laughs> as in similar to some of the music scene now, is that the people who are you know you know sort of saying they support or we would say have woke values. They want verification or they want support from the establishment. They aren't anti-establishment. Stuart Lee is still, I think, anti-establishment. But modern comedians, at least that I would see, or you would probably maybe call, you know, woke or whatever, they seem to want validation and support and um, to be kept safe by the very institutions of power that yeah. once upon a time artists held to account. And that's something yeah. we said in the email thread, and I think that's a kind of good nucleus of a conversation, is what I don't understand, it's the same with music, is... What happened to sticking it to the man? Is it because everyone yeah. wants to be the man now, or do you, know, do, you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, I think people on the left think that um, think that the right have have power. I mean, because ostensibly there is a, a conservative government. Well, I mean, they're supposed to be a conservative government. They don't seem to be very very conservative. No, um, and people on the right think that the left. Have the power because I mean everything <coughs> is systemically woke now. You know yeah. the, the BBC, but like eh, everything, the the decisions being made, um, you know through tech, academia, yeah. um, the arts, uh, public sector, everything is uh, you know is run by by left wing people now. So and I think both sides have got a point. But if you're looking at who's got the cultural power, it's definitely the left. Yeah. You know if you look at the BBC, um, of all the comedians on the BBC who um, expressed a political point of view, 99% were left-wing and 1% were Jeff Norcott. So it really is that that imbalance. Yeah. Um, it, it's ridiculous. And the alternative comedians of the 80s, so they were kicking back against the establishment, kicking back against you know these um, these old men doing their sexist jokes yeah. uh, and kicking kicking back against you know uh, Thatcher and all the rest of it. Which is um, enough, but they, they're, they've become the establishment. But yeah. they, they don't see it. And all these, all these new ones coming up. I mean, like you say, it's, it's weird that um, people, you know, comedy, music, you traditionally be uh, questioning uh, the establishment, criticising the establishment. And yeah. now they're like uh, just reinforcing, any, you know, the stuff that the establishment says, like, oh, you must wear a face mask. You know, the government's telling you to wear a face mask. You must wear a face mask. And uh, there's no um, 
there's 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 no dissent allowed. Like no. if you don't wear a face mask, you're literally killing uh, Granny. Uh-huh. Even though now people just aren't dying from no. coronavirus. No, anymore. I mean it's very it's very it's that similar thing has happened in metal. Is that bands who sang about rebellion, or more interestingly, being opposed to faith, now carry water not only for trans multinational corporations or big pharma but ask us to have faith in the very same institution they've been trying to rail against for 20 30 years and it breaks my brain because i'm really sort of out on a limb opposite that but i always stood there in relation to the hour i call our scene for the last 20 25 years and it's like oh you're all on the other side of the fence now but you're standing beside pfizer or and it sort of makes me wonder about the um all the, the sort of things that people sang about, I guess, were they did, didn't stand behind them or they didn't mean anything anyway, or that people are just like your average person, scared into some sort of submission to the end, you know, two years of propaganda. I don't yeah. know. But it's very strange yeah, it, that, that even in extreme metal, people are following the same sort of mantra. Yeah, yeah. And also uh, in comedy, there's a, there's a big sort of um, <coughs> people will, uh, you know, go toe the line with you know what the multinational corporations say, so Pfizer, AstraZeneca, all the rest of it. They toe the line with uh, with what the, the government says, but they'll they'll kick against the sort of um, the liberal institutions that preserve our freedoms and preserve our rights. So um, you know there's a lot of criticism of the British Empire. If you were, if you were to look at the, the output of comedy, you would think that all the British Empire did was uh, subjugate people and uh, destroy people. You'd think there's no no positive, uh, there's no sort of, uh, you know, rule of law or, uh, you know, the right to, right to a home life, right to, right to privacy. There's no, uh, there's no courts and, you know, the right to a free trial. Um, you know, none of, the, none of the good things that, you know, personally I associate with, with Britain and the British Empire. You'd think none of those came to pass and Britain was just revolved around, uh, you know, massacring um, brown people. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we we could, oddly enough, in a sort of weird paradox, it's something most people don't mention is like medicine and, you know, that kind of thing, which came with empire, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, look, all uh, empires, all empires, like, I mean, they take away people's freedoms to a certain extent, but they deliver huge benefits. Like the Roman Empire, when when they came in um, and they, they did it really cleverly, so they allowed people to keep their religion and all the rest. The Roman Empire only collapsed when they started enforcing, mm. um, I guess it would have been, was it Christianity? Yeah, it must have been Christianity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they used to they used to uh, let people keep their own keep their own religion and customs and all the rest of it. And they they said, "And look, we're going to build these roads. We're going to build this sewage system and all the rest of it. Give you this, you know, this uh, power structure to to have civilization. Yeah. And all you got to do is just uh, you know give us some money, give us some of that food, and uh, you know, send anybody who looks good at fighting, send them to us, and uh, we'll train them to be fighters, or we'll make them kill giraffes in a big." Um, football stadium, and that was a great system. That was an empire that really worked. And I think the British Empire, you know, you go you go to India or whatever, um, people people have a lot of respect and a lot of love for for Britain. Um, the people who don't have a lot of love for Britain are the the British people who've been to university. Well, I mean, that's kind of it. It's got it, but it's. I think it's something um, wider. I think it's like a sort of um, a cultural malaise or malady, a sickness, a sort of European. Um, an internal sort of uh, internalized academic European sickness in the sense that there's no belief in the structures of European society, whether they were democracy or freedom of speech or all those kind of things, where we've sort of internalized this masochism, where we've decided that we yeah. absolutely hate ourselves. And it's been, it, if it, it, 
it's been really sort of amplified the last five or ten years. You know, I see it in my own scene as well. Um, whereas before, um, you could have, well, sang. I suppose it was, um, you know, you could have sang about paganism, for example. And we see yeah. it. We see it in Netflix and f programs like Vikings and that kind of scene. That's where my scene was sort of housed in that sort of, I suppose, a form of romantic paganist ideal or something like this, which yeah. slowly turned into something which was something to be moved into a sort of empirical view of being ashamed of, but even though it was, you know, a thousand years before that or whatever. But it seems to me like there's a sort of collective sickness, um, which maybe was coming in the post and it's been coming in the post for 50, 60 years. I don't know, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, and there's like, um, you know, people say that uh, the seeds of this were sown in the universities by, um, you know, left-wing agitators and funded by the KGB to sort of destabilize Western democracy. Because it's interesting that wars are, are won and lost these days. Like go, going out to Vietnam, America ostensibly lost uh, the Vietnam War militarily and politically. Uh, but culturally, you go there, man, it's all capitalism's everywhere yeah. and um, very, you know, really thriving economy. And you realize that culturally and economically capitalism, the American values have, have won there yeah. uh, because people want to be free and they want to, you know, essentially people want to want to do what they want to do. Yeah. Um, and for all that capitalism gets maligned, capitalism's really just, you know, all right, I've got this money, this resources, I want to do what I want to do with it rather than what the government wants to do with it. And it always works better as a system because the government doesn't have a clue what it's doing. I used to work in government and um, uh, honestly, government should just be kept as small as possible. Yeah, I mean, um, that's, that's the sort of libertarian ideal really, isn't it? To have small government, yeah. which is the opposite of where we're headed now. And that's one of the things that I find kind of so grimly fascinating is that I you know, toured around the, uh, around the world a lot and I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe, especially in the last 20, 25 years, I've been to Russia and Ukraine, I've been in, you know, Vietnam and Cambodia and so as well, but also into South America and Central America. And trying to tell some 22-year-old kid who ideal, idealizes, I suppose, it's, it's, it's no, it's, um, it's just kind of a tradition to idolize, whether it was people like Che Guevara or something, but to idolize communism, to try and ring yeah. the bell and go, um, say to them, well, there's a lot of signposts about what's happening now during the pandemic where you're saying to people, this is a soft signpost to authoritarianism that I've seen in other countries and other countries are people because people listen to the podcast everyone they message me going what the fuck are you guys doing in Europe in the west have you <laughs> turned democracy on its head in just under two years and of course yeah. oh no Alan come on come on and you sort of try and say to people I mean one of my podcasts I did like 50 episodes ago was just like democracy is not the default setting of society and the fact that we yeah. think it is oh, we're, we're, li we're living in a very brief like you know on a sort of chronological scale, yeah. very brief sliver of freedom and democracy compared to human history. Yeah. And people, this is the thing. I mean, I, I used to think that um, you know British people valued our freedom so much. You know, it's embedded in our in our DNA, and we'd never stand for people taking away our freedoms. Turns out, yeah. uh, in lockdown, people loved people loved having their freedoms taken away. They love yeah. having feeling safe. They love the yeah. illusion of safety, you yeah. know, rather than the the genuine uh, safety of, of freedom. Yeah. Um, so. I mean, uh, although I mean, a lot of that was driven by the fact that they were getting uh, eighty percent of their salary from the government to sit in their arse doing nothing. Yeah. Um, I mean, when that goes away, I think you know. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's a friend of mine said to me. He goes, he go, he just said to me, and he was very being very blunt about it. He just goes, mate, you played in a band for thirty years. You fucking skirted around the system. You travel the world, blah blah blah, and then everything got taken from you within two weeks of the pandemic. He goes, your average person, 
and without sounding um, patronizing, worked a fucking job they hated for a boss, a middle management boss who fucking dumped on them. They now get paid mm -hmm. 350, 300 quid a week to sit at home, smoke weed, play fucking PlayStation and, and fucking, I don't know, learn the sitar or something. They're like, yeah, yeah, do what they want to do. They're like fucking great. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he says, and they don't give a fuck that you are worried about freedom of speech or you're worried about all this kind of stuff. They're like, meh. Yeah. But, which and so I I see that at some at some stage, but I also think there's a percentage of people who, as you say, really are just fine with this, and that really breaks yeah. my brain. Yeah, even the surveys uh, that they did they did a did a survey. There was like twenty percent of the people surveyed were were happy with uh, you know an eight pm curfew, like yeah. ongoing, regardless of whether that's there's what, coronavirus or that's not. That's what we have here. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. We everything is shut here at eight pm. All pops. All all. I mean, we've had the longest and the strictest lockdown in Dublin, I think, than any yeah. capital city in Europe. And we've had about, we had one month where things opened up a bit. Um, I mean, we don't play here often with the band, but we, there's been no gigs. Yeah. And one month in 23, there's been, it's 8 p.m. right now, so I'm right in the city centre. By 8.15, city's dead. And no, you know, like, right, yeah. like, like that for before Christmas or whatever. And it, it breaks my brain, of course, to think that, like, for a majority of people, this doesn't bother them at all. The fact that there's no, our history dictates that we sing about rebellion after three drinks, and that this is the island of art and culture and musicians. And actually, it's not. It's a. It's a. It seems to be a, a, a nation of people who are happy to just sit on the couch and watch Netflix. Yeah, same. Same with Scotland. Like in the film, Scottish people are all like freedom, but yeah. in real life, they're like, oh, please, can you lock me into my own house? And even yeah. even before lockdown, like the SNP. There's so many just joy killing, uh, you know, just you know, nitpickingly authoritarian yeah, yeah. rules. You, yeah, you can't I'm, buy beer in, in the shop after 10 p.m. Yeah, so I yeah. used to, you know, drive up to Scotland get there at 10:30. You can't buy a beer in Tesco. It's like yeah. I'm, a, I'm a grown man. Yeah. I'm like I'm 29. I'm, I'm 45, but like you know, I can't buy a can't buy a beer in Tesco. Like, yeah. What do you think? Like, what do you think I'm going to do with this beer? I'm just yeah. going to drink it. You know what I mean? I'm not going to go out like jacking cars or anything. Um, and the government, so I mean, there's a double edged sword because people, people love the lockdown. I mean, when they're getting paid to, to love it yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, and it also revealed to, to any bad actor, I mean, like, you know, somebody wants to do a bad thing, not uh, somebody who's an Emmerdale, Far Emmerdale farm, but like, uh, it revealed to, to any future government, if we get like, you know, a worse, a more authoritarian government than we've got now. That yeah, people yeah. will put up with a, with a lot. They will put up with a, a lot of restrictions on their freedom. So China will be looking at that for when they yeah, invade yeah. in like twelve years' time. Well, I mean, the, but that's the point: is that what what once had was unprecedented now has precedence. And yeah. so the idea that if if this is how we behave, at the you know still in restrictions based on this new strain that, as you say, is not very lethal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I mean, how can we not do this every winter? That's that's the thing. And of course. Yeah. The fact that there isn't that much pushback is an authoritarian has has revealed a sort of rather grim authoritarian streak in uh, yeah. across Europe, you know. Yeah, and Australia as well. All the countries that you know you traditionally associate with people, uh, you know, really not giving a fuck or you know really being sort of anti-establishment, um, are actually have the, the strictest and, and harshest rules. Like Scotland, Ireland, and, and Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. It, I play football with a bunch of lads from Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, stuff like this, Nigeria, and they're literally like, "You guys are too rich. You fucking if he, he my mate, <laughs> yeah, my mate from Casablanca, he says to me, he goes, "You can't farm today. We can't eat tomorrow. 
That's it. And he goes, yeah. if, if the government tried to do this, the people would be on the streets and they, they'd be done. They turn it on its head. Yeah. But you guys yeah. are too rich, too comfortable, too middle class, too safe. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, and he's he's just right. Um, yeah. MR is just exactly right. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah. I mean, not, not me, but <laughs> yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. So many, so many modern problems. Not not just the fact that we can have a sort of twenty four month lockdown, but um, but you know all all the things that, that people stress about, like uh, like critical race theory, um, or uh, you know having four hundred and thirty eight genders or whatever. It's all a symptom of people just having too yeah. much time yeah. to sit and think. And also, you know, people people always want to slay a dragon. Yeah. Um, so, you know, fair enough, in the 50s, the 60s, with the civil rights movement, you know, uh, women's rights, uh, LGBTQ rights, these were genuine things that needed yeah. to change. They've pretty much changed now. You know, I'm yeah. not saying society is perfect, but, you know, yeah. all equality uh, and equal rights written into law. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, certainly written into most of society as well. You know, if you walked down the street or went to a pub and started, you know, saying racist stuff yeah, yeah. people would be like what the fuck you get thrown out you know what i yeah, mean yeah. it's not accepted yeah no um, or you, get your, head, still, you get your head kicked in or something once people still time. think people still think that like you know there's these huge problems with race in fact they think it's getting worse yeah so they're still going around trying to like you know fight it but now now it's like somebody tweeting something that's misinterpreted yeah. instead of you know um a lynching so yeah. the stuff the stuff that they think is you know it's so awful is is uh, is nowhere near as, as bad as it was or is just completely misinterpreted so that they, they can get they've got an excuse to get their sword out and try and kill a dragon. I think a lot of it is class to be honest and it's something that most people don't want to talk about that much but I think it is a class thing. I think it's middle class people or upper middle class people who are have been through academia who don't really know many working class people. Like say for example yeah, yeah. during the lockdown the pajama party people, you know, the sort of middle class people who could just pad around their PJs all day who were like, "Oh, what are you talking about going back to work?" They weren't <laughs> they weren't they weren't a taxi driver from an inner city area of Dublin with with four kids who were trying who they, were living on the breadline who had to go out like that that they 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 were so they're so removed from those people now. Mm. And and that's that's I think that's part uh, behind Brexit, that's behind all this, a lot of stuff in, in the UK, but it's just like this lack of understanding of, and so you yeah. have people on the woke new left, and I would say, I, I would call myself old left, like 80s old left, in a sense, in the sense that, you know, you're talking about housing, healthcare, that kind of stuff, education, yeah, like real stuff. Uh, and, and so those, but the new people who are on the side of what we call the sort of new left or whatever, they seem to me to be so removed, and I think it's because of the screen, because of spending all their time on a screen, so removed from old school working class people that their attitude to them, you know, this kind of paternalistic, almost colonial attitude of um, you're not in your right mind to, you know, don't you know the risk? And you're like, these, and you're trying to tell them, well, these people have four kids living in a house with no garden. Um, they need to go out and work and yeah. an empty street with no, you know, people outside. No, who can get a fucking taxi? But you know what I mean? Yeah. So I and also uh, working working class people. So if you worked in Tesco, well, there's no furlough for you. So eighty no. percent of your salary while no. while you're playing PlayStation. And Tesco, Tesco people, nobody's coming out and clapping for them. They were like no. behind the counter when yeah. everybody's like supposed to be dropping bodies are piling high in the streets. They're yeah. still there for like, you know, whatever minimum wage, stacking yeah. shelves. Yeah. It's uh yeah, so there's no there's no fun furlough for, for them. No. And yeah, working working class people historically have always sort of borne the brunt of uh so, so Brexit, for example, uh, was a response to the, the mass immigration um, that we saw in the UK. And immigration, obviously, you know, is a good thing. I'm, you know, I, 
technically emigrated from Scotland. Um, yeah. My fiance emigrated from Ireland. You know, I've, yeah. I've lived in other countries. I think the movement of people is is a good idea, but it's got to be done sensibly. And also, I think you know, society should do work to make sure that the benefits are spread out more and the negative impacts are spread out more. So if, if you're if you're working class, say you're a you're a builder, and you've got you know a wife and three kids and two cars uh, and a mortgage to pay. You've got a lot of overheads. So yeah. if guys from uh, the Ukraine, and I've, I've worked as a laborer, I've worked alongside guys from the yeah. Ukraine, and you know, great guys and stuff, but they're living three to a room yeah, in, yeah. A, in a rented house. So their overheads were tiny. So yeah. they could obviously afford to undercut the cost of the, the British builders. Yeah. Um, and the benefits are going, so the benefits of that cheap labor are going to people with wealth, people who spend spend the money, people are buying the, you know, paying for the conservatories and the loft extensions and stuff. So they're, they're going to middle class people. And the, the negative impact is being borne by um, by working class people. And also working class people, you know, bear the impact of uh, pressure on public services and, uh, you know, the sort of social upheaval, the the change that so your, you know, your local spa turns to, turns into a Polsky sklep. And uh, you've got to you've got to learn how to eat cabanos. And uh, like, so, I mean, you know, even though immigration overall brings a lot of benefits, like I think people really didn't understand. They thought Brexit was about you know people just being racist. Yeah, yeah. It's like no people. You know, it's it's like people say footballers are racist. Like how come yeah. for for decades, you know, so many people in football. Football was like one of the original places where um, where uh, black people were were accepted because you know it turns out they're better at football <laughs> but it, it did take, overall, so there's it, lots of black players it did take a long i mean and, we could say that the maybe not in the 70s and early 80s but by you know it it it, it took a long time but it did change you know especially yeah yeah but the odd thing it, and like well well i mean in, in the 70s uh you know people think you know football is this you know incredibly racist thing in the 70s and yeah i mean it, it was but i mean there's there's different levels of racism and certainly i think denying people employment is a form of racism. If you're discriminating against black people and denying, denying them employment, that's that's a very sort of, uh, and it's got a you know a quantitative impact. Well, um, you know very, the sign, the sign, no blacks, impact. no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. So you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, so, Millwall in the seventies had mm. more black players mm. than the Guardian had black journalists, and the Guardian's this you know beacon. Of uh, you know righteous leftism and equality, but they don't put their money where their mouth is. You know no. they didn't have they didn't have the the black journalists. Yeah. Um, so I mean I, th I think that's an example of uh, you know working class uh, and purely purely from a sort of capitalist point of view because Millwall knew if we get these players they're gonna they're gonna play better than yeah. you know compared compared to the other. So they weren't they weren't putting their the racist ideology above anything else. They were, they wanted to make money. They wanted to have a good team. Whereas yeah. the Guardian were happy to be subtly racist. I mean, I played football for years in uh, Rough as Guts, uh, Northside Dublin Football Leagues. Um, I always played football and stuff. And there was this big furore maybe 10 years ago. It was just, a, you know, seven or eight years ago about, you know, terrorist chanting and the inherent racism of the locker room. I guess it was just part of the yeah. sort of our, what was supposed to be our misogynic, misogynistic misandry or whatever that was evident in the locker room. And I remember meeting a journalist or whatever and going, well, I play football with these people, against these people. I've never heard this kind of stuff. Like You realise that all the people who were writing about it, of course, had never been to <laughs> a football match yeah. to see whatever. And I go and watch see Bohemians in Dublin and stuff, you know. Um, and you realise that all these people had just never really 
either been in a locker room or been to see any of these things. So, and I think that's still evident now in a lot of things that are written. Um, I think the pandemic and the sort of post-Trumpism has sort of accelerated an idea that, well, if it isn't true what we write, it could be. And if it's part yeah. of the crusade, then it's righteous. And therefore, it doesn't matter if it's sort of not really true. There's a, that's a rather yeah. messy sentence, yeah. but you know what I mean? Well, yeah, you saw it with, I mean, it's the anniversary uh, today of the Capitol Hill riots. Yeah. And they're painted in the media as this, you know, it was a coup. Trump tried to take down the government. It's like, man, like, there's no way a few guys in, like, Viking helmets are going to take down the American government. That is just yeah. a ridiculous narrative to play. I mean, obviously, they shouldn't have done it. It's, yeah. It was terrible. Like, people people died on the day. Policemen committed suicide afterwards. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it was uh, to, to paint it as a coup because America, America's got um, it's got a history of uh, being involved in coups, yeah. and they never send in you know what looks like a stag do. They always no. send in like <laughs> tanks and like Apache helicopters and yeah, yeah. you know gu well, guns and tanks. Yeah, I mean, I've well, I've been to countries in Central America and South America, and yeah, places where coups involved, um, yeah, rather more than that, you know. But it's again, it's just the misappropriation of a word to get more clicks, to say it's storming yeah. a coup rather than what it really was, which was high farce and high treason. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind yeah, of, exactly. what I, that's what I said it was at the time, you know, in a, in one of the podcasts, yeah. whatever storming. And also I felt it was in the, it was in the context of, you know, there'd been months and months and months of Antifa and Black Lives Matter riots yeah. where they were smashing up businesses, you know, yeah. burning homes and businesses and cars, yeah. assaulting people. And I mean, I thought you know this this riot was um, sort of given credit or given you know allowed to happen because yeah. because of that um, you know because of the context of, of that happening and also um, uh, fuck I can't remember what I was going to say but yeah, there was another thing I was going to well, <laughs> well it's, it's it's interesting you mention Antifa because um, I mean we in the metal scene know them I mean I have friends in the old Antifa from the 90s. The metal scene was quite familiar with Antifa in 2000, mid-90s or whatever. So we could, when they popped up again um, <laughs> behind all this stuff, having toured America, you know, like when you play in Portland, when you play in whatever, of course, you're going to meet people from the sort of left metal scene. Um, yeah, and yeah. it was quite interesting that all of a sudden they became this, um, you know, kind of, uh, there was a sort of celebrity status attached to them. And it was like, oh, we know these guys from... 20, 25 years ago when they would brush shoulders in the metal scene, sort of policing what was going on in the metal scene, you know? Um, and it sort of, again, was a sort of interesting thing to observe how, um, you know, the sort of canary in the coal mine of our extreme music culture 20 years ago slipped into the mainstream so, 10, 15, 20 years ago later. You yeah, know? so when you talk about, like, Antifa 20, 20 25 years ago, um, sort of policing the metal scene... Maybe, um, let's, say, let's, say, let's say 15... 20 yeah. right yeah yeah so is that is that sort of what you're talking about with the um you know the almost like the uh cultural revolution in metal and you know middle class people coming in and imposing a, their a values on the on the scene a, a little bit it's it's the middle class people slipped into the scene anyway and then i'm saying to the yeah heavy metal if you look at iron maiden or something like that to me they're working class heroes the clash aren't yeah they're mid you know they're public oh yeah the clash went to art school yeah so Same the sex pistols went you know yeah. But whereas Iron Maiden were just working class lads from East End. So heavy metal always had a working class root to it. And I think that in a way, to me at least, many some punks may disagree, but punk kind of envied that in a way. 
and they sort yeah. of emulated, but sort of sort of change, especially metal, black metal in the nineties, late nineties. Um, but certainly, um, the anti-fire something was a name we would have we would have known these people in 96 97 98 and of course the mm. old left movement in ireland i knew many punks in the 80s and so if i used to go to punk squats in 89 and 90 to see gigs and so when there was a genuine um social wedge behind some of the things you know that i would have ag agreed with you know i would have known those people but as you say some part of it again was a sort of middle class um post art student academic slide into our scene which then decided to tell us what was and wasn't acceptable um, yeah. and we could see the thing happening which and i think happened in comedy 10 15 years previous or a version of it or at least the antifa becoming such a like on the name of or, you know on the on the lips of the president of the united states just seemed so oddly incongruous if you if we if we went back to 2000 or 98 and yeah. thought about it. it's just so bizarre you know yeah, um, I don't know if there was a question there or just a sort of random ramble, but you know, but the, the, yeah, the, no, I'm... the metal scene sort of had that sort of view into this before, you know. Yeah, yeah, but the I mean the image of Antifa certainly the image that I've got. Uh, bear in mind that I'm mates with Andy. No, uh, right. like it's it's not it's not a sort of positive one. Whereas you know no. stuff that I listened to in the nineties, like Sonic Youth, would be you know the Youth Against Fascism and stuff yeah. like that was was a much more. Yeah. Um, Sort of positively. I mean, now Antifa seems to be railing against something that, that doesn't really exist. There aren't. I mean, everybody's calling Trump a fascist. He's, he's not. A, he's no. he's not a fascist. He's no. just a cool guy who likes to party. And uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. And like. Well, I mean, in the early eighties, you would have had bands like Crass and Conflict, the sort of anarcho yeah. early scene where that came from, and that I would under you know that I would understand you know which but that was also railing against things like Hans Saboturing. And there was a sort of, you know, there was a sort of early vegetarian movement and all that kind of stuff. And there was old leftist movements enshrined in that early, old, 80, early 80s anarcho-punk scene, which I would yeah. um, have, you know, respected. But somehow it morphed into, I'm not really sure what it, what it is now. It seems to be um, so removed from its working class roots again. like kind Yeah, of, all like the ones... All the ones that I see getting like arrested and stuff, and the the police mugshots I see, yeah. they're all like you can tell they've got some weird gender. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they've got the blue hair, they've got nose piercings, uh, they've got no money, they've got an OnlyFans, uh, they shit in the street, they take yeah. drugs, uh, and they're they're not people. Uh, I don't want them near my uh, children or my my pets. But I think and, it, um, it also points, yeah, that, it also points to the huge mental health crisis in the states as well, though that, that you know that which was bizarrely enough caused by big pharma and opioids as well. That there are so many people who just are so fucked and outside the system who are just like going, "Oh, great, a protest! Let's roll along to that," you know? Right, 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 right. And it provides a sort of community for for them. Yeah, yeah. In a way, in a way, that's, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting because I mean, we're sort of. We're living in times. I mean, I guess you know, I'm I'm lucky because, uh, like, I can. I, I just, but I just, I mean, I, I sort of say I'm lucky because you know I can deal with stuff and I don't have mental mental health problems. Maybe. But I mean, at the same time, Jesus Christ, if these people can't make a living for themselves in a free, stable capitalist society like like America, mm. man, they'd be dead in a ditch in 
under a communist society, you know. I mean, live, living under communism, like you know, they seem to think it's this panacea that's going to deliver yeah. all these like wonderful stuff. And it's like, no, communism is a complete feudal hierarchical power structure. Yeah. You've got to constantly be managing, you know, yeah. upwards managing relationships and making sure you don't uh, speak out, out of place. I mean, the the first person to stop clapping at Stalin's speeches would get a, a visit from the KGB. It wasn't yeah. Uh, yeah. it wasn't a pleasant free society at all. No, and I mean, having spent a lot of, you know, toured a lot of those countries, spent a lot of time, even 20 years ago, playing, um, you know, Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary, Serbia, Serbia, being in Ukraine, being in Russia a whole bunch of times. And yeah. I mean, I would say to some, you know, to my 20-year-old cousin who's in college, like, you need to go to Russia, speak to some Russians. Or let's yeah. say go to Romania and see what, what do you, how do you feel about Ceausescu? Um, or speak yeah, to people who lived yeah. under it, Lithuania, Estonia, yeah. Latvia, especially those countries, and see well, how yeah. they feel about this. That's not really something they really want to do, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I mean there are there are advantages. I was in Belarus a couple of years back, and so this oh, yeah. is before um, yeah. before uh, Lukashenko sort of hit the hit the skids. Yeah, yeah. Um, people by then everything was stable, and people seemed to be um, accepting of their dictator rather than. Um, opposed them, but uh, everything was super neat and tidy. Yeah, yeah. And I remember there was uh, there was one night this tramp was trying to get into our apartment block, and uh, you know, obviously like a homeless guy. I got I started talking to him, spoke like perfect English, had a physics degree, and yeah, he was yeah. so polite. And he was like, "I'm very sorry for trying to break into your house." <laughs> so yeah. it's not like the tramps you get in Glasgow at all. No. So no. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, well, actually, speaking of Glasgow, I, I was in Glasgow in November. I played there with another band. And um, it, having spent a lot of time in Glasgow and Edinburgh over the years before that, it, it I don't understand the SNP, SNP thing and Scottish people that I know. I don't understand how they seem to be in power. And also how Scotland is, like, what happened to Scotland that it's chosen this authoritarian route? route? I, I really oh, don't man. I Like when I was in Glasgow, it felt like the soul have been just ripped out of the place. The, the rules and regulations yeah. are so much more extreme than in England. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot there's a lot of threads to it, but um, but basically, the SNP they're a, they're a single issue party. Um, I mean, Nigel Farage based his campaign on um, on the SNP. So the the SNP because they're a devolved parliament, they're constantly fighting against Westminster. Anything that goes wrong, they can blame on Westminster. Anything that goes well, they can take credit for themselves. Um, and Scotland itself is really suffering under the SNP. So educational standards have plummeted. It used to be, you know, some of the best in Europe. Uh, health outcomes, uh, drug, drug abuse, drug deaths. It was all always bad in Scotland, yeah, but yeah. there's a lot of progress made at the, in the sort of early noughties and stuff. Um, in the in the 14 years of SNP rule, um, dr drug deaths are now three and a half times higher than the rest of the well, UK. You, you um, so the it's insane. You also have the lowest, don't you? Average male life expectancy is, isn't it, fifty-eight? It's come down like three or four years in the last, or sixty. Yeah, it's come down four or five years in the last few. But, but yeah, why? which is shocking. There's a there's a real poverty of aspiration in Scotland, but also what what the SNP have done question, is the, yeah. the SNP have bribed uh, young Scots to stay in Scotland. So Scottish people used to used to leave, used to go to yeah. go to London, you know, study in Same English in Ireland, English yeah. cities. And um, yeah, and, and now the SNP say, well, if you stay in Scotland, you study in Scotland, we'll, we'll pay your tuition fees and pay your you know student loans and all the rest of it. So people stay in Scotland, they don't leave. And then you know 
if you study in Scotland, you're more likely to stay in Scotland. So then they've got this like um, the, the young the SNP is super woke. So um, people in Scotland think, oh, the, the Tories they're evil. English people are evil, and you know it really foments this sort of parochial, inward-looking, um, real sort of negative uh, what well, nationalism. Um, and for some reason, you know, English nationalism is is seen, you know, recognised as a as a as a malign force. Whereas uh, Scottish nationalism, because it's directed against uh, against the English, who are you know the oppressors, ostensibly, is seen as a as a good thing. Yeah. Um, and I think the, if I, I almost I almost want Scotland to get independence uh, mm. because I know that within within like six months it would be a disaster for and the SNP would be absolutely hated. Oh. Absolutely loath. They they wouldn't be able to blame things on on yeah. uh, on Brit on England anymore. Wouldn't be able to blame things on on Westminster. And uh, yeah, I mean, what they've done at Scotland is, I mean, as as a Scot, yeah, it's, it's a tragedy. Scotland used to be, you know, such a such a creative place, such an yeah. outward looking place, and now yeah. it's, you know, I mean, Scotland used to run the UK. There was so yeah. many. I worked in in government. I worked in policing, yeah. and um, uh, you know, there's so many so many Scots, you know, throughout throughout the military, throughout police. Uh, throughout throughout government, like so many talk, like Tony Blair, nobody talks about it, but he was actually Scottish. Gordon Brown, obviously. Gordon um, Brown, yeah. you know, all these, and, and you know, Robin Cook. There's so many, so many Scots. Ah, Robin um, Cook, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't and now, and now there's now we've got Michael Gove, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, and the next I, generation, they're all, they're all staying in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, it was just so weird because I I did a little tour. I um, do the bass in this other band called Dread Sovereign yeah. and we did a little tour when England opened up there for a little bit and when we we went we played in the UK and then we went up to Scotland and we were sent this messages by the venue and one of the one of the stipulations for playing there was if you talk about COVID if you say anything against the mask mandates or the anything anything remotely against the narrative of whatever this mainstream th thing is, you will be pulled yeah. off the stage and your show cancelled and you will not be oh paid. It was in the that's room. Like, that's fucked up. That's like Lenny Bruce. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, he was told, you know, if you say if you say these words, you're going to get yeah. pulled. He literally was dragged off the yeah. stage by police and arrested yeah. and yeah. then hound, hounded to his death. Yeah, I mean, and I, I mean, I, the reality was we showed up in our van and guy went, all right. And he just let us in and we played our gig and no one said a thing. So the but yeah. just you know that somebody on the third floor has written, well, we better put all these rules in. Yeah, but it was yeah. quite incredible that as soon as we drove across the border, it felt very, so very different than, you know, we played once on the South Coast, one show or whatever. And the difference between that and Glasgow, which used to be this fun, vibrant place, and not only did everybody have yeah, to have yeah. their vaccination passport to get into the gig, they also needed a test on top of that. And everyone was encouraged to distance, and everyone just seventy-five or hundred people stood there going, Ugh, and then just <laughs> filed out in sort of silence. And I was like, "This is not the Glasgow I remember." And yeah. You realise that, like, I mean, this is what makes me very sad about what's happening. Well, one of the things is that before long, the, these situations just become learned, learned, um, you know, sort of social yeah. attributes or whatever, not attributes, but whatever, um, and. People just go, well, this is just how it is. They forget that yeah. it was different three years ago, and they go, well, we'll just file in in single file, show three sets of papers to get in and go, and then we leave, and the city's empty by <laughs> 11. And I yeah. mean, my friends, I mean, to me, naive friends of mine still go, but why would a government want that? And I go, why would a government want more control for their city to not be? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah. 
I go, what the fuck are you talking about? Or why would they not want just a model showroom city where just rich people go to eat and all the yeah. rest of us are pushed to just stay inside? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know, people still can't compute that, at least to me, and I hope to be wrong. The other thing yeah. that it is, yeah. I mean, the, what might... Well, the, the other thing, I mean, the, the government's making so much money from lockdown. Not, not the government, yeah. but government ministers. Um, so, I mean, Transparency International, like 20% of COVID contracts are, uh, are dodgy or, yeah. you know, potentially corrupt. Um, so Owen Patterson, uh, you know, nearly brought down Boris. Yeah. Um, but so, he, you know, he's getting uh, backhanders. He's working for Randox, the PCR testing company. Yeah. And so they're paying him and they get the government contracts. So, you know, Matt Hancock's former pub landlord got a contract to make, um, you know, PPE or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's all this, you know, all this people are all getting, you know, backhanders and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you can see where the incentive to have this, uh, you know, the absolute power to, you know, skip a tendering process, the absolute right. power to, you know, hand out taxpayers' money to your, to your friends. Yeah, of um, It's very, very enticing. Of course, but so you, I mean, there's a there's a new kind of comedian, right? Which is the ones who were YouTubers, then comedians, and sort of vice versa. They went from YouTubers to being, and they they sort of make their main, I think, living uh, from Patreon and YouTube. I mean, it, yeah. how are you able to sort of survive as a touring comedian? I mean, I was a touring musician. It's it's not. I can't do it at the moment. I mean, until hopefully summer festival season comes back then we'll start to play festivals, but we can't tour, tour. But yeah. is it, I mean, are you able to do a comedy circuit now in the UK or how does it work? Yeah, or I mean, the, I used to just go around doing... What? No, I used to go around doing all the clubs, um, you know, so uh, you can either do club sets or you can do your own show. So, you know, if I went out to Southeast Asia, Australia, or comedy festivals okay. like the Edinburgh Fringe, I'd do my solo show. And sure, that's, but, that's but, an hour. And but in the pandemic, how, how I mean... It, Oh, during the pandemic. Um, well, basically, I, I went to um, I went to Dubai because uh, okay, they didn't yeah. have a lockdown there. I was I was I was stranded in Australia for the first lockdown, um, so I came back in like June uh, June of twenty twenty one. Sorry, twenty twenty, and then um, yeah, but I, I went into politics. Um, so uh, I met up with Lawrence Fox and uh, yeah. uh, stood as a representative of his Reclaim Party in Glasgow. Okay. Uh, stood against the um, Hamza Youssef, who was the Justice Minister at that what time. What was your experience um, with that? His, his hate crime bill. So basically, yeah, Scotland yeah. brought through this hate crime bill that criminalises, yeah. you know, conversation. Yeah, it's yeah. shocking, shocking piece of legislation. It would criminalise this conversation. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally, and like, you know, and you, you're living under fear because everything's down to perception. And uh, there's very little sort of objectivity, um, and you know the, the burden of proof on on a joke. You know how like how do you police a joke? How do you prove that you're being ironic? So um, tell me, so tell me about this though. That's quite interesting. So how did you? I mean, I know Lawrence Fox, and I know you've been involved in podcasts, the Lotus Eaters, and that kind of stuff. But how did you? Yeah. How? What was your um, experience in in trying to step into that sort of legal political realm? Well, I mean it's. Uh, I used to work. I was a government consultant. I was a criminal intelligence right. analyst. So I've got I've got experience of um, you know working government, writing speeches for politicians, and okay. all the rest of it. Guide doing analysis to guide um, uh, to guide policy and stuff. Um, so I've al I've always been interested in government and yeah. things like that. And then you know I quit to, to just shout dick jokes at drunk people for a while. But you know I, st I was still 
you know, I had a subscription to Economist and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, basically, um, so Lawrence got accused of being racist and his yeah, whole yeah. life was just completely just blown blown up. You know, he went from being a really well-paid actor. Yeah, and he didn't say anything racist. No, no. He, you know, no, expressed no, no. an opinion that was fairly, fairly reasonable. Yeah. And you know, he's quite, a, he's quite, a, um, <laughs> you know, a mischievous uh, person. So he's not, he's not somebody to, you know, tugged off his cap and you know, yeah, yeah. bow down at, at woke people. So you know, he's very irreverent. Um, but I mean, I like that. The woke people seem to see that as blasphemy um, and and wanted to destroy his life uh, for it. You know, so I, I was. You know, I, I saw that and I thought, man, that's that's ridiculous. Um, and uh, a similar thing happened to me. Somebody in the comedy industry called me racist. And, mm. uh, you know, based on nothing, based on, I went on Radio 4 and I was talking about the lack of uh, working class representation in, in comedy. Because uh, on Radio 4, I can get away with being working class in Scotland. I'm, I'm upper middle class. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, and it, and it caused loads of problems for me. And it was just some, it was some posh, useless uh, sh shit com comedy industry person call calling me racist to try and look cool in front of their, front of her friends. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that pissed me off. I, and she was a member of the Live Comedy Association, which is this sort of uh, statutory body that's been set up to regulate comedy. Because, oh, there's something that's <clears throat> going to make comedy funnier. It's having a, a government body regulating it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, so I complained to them. I ended up getting issued with a, a certificate say saying that I'm not racist. And they said I could show it to any promoter if they wow. was worried that I was racist. I'm like, wow, that's oh, that's really going to help. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> they show sure, hey, here's my certificate saying I'm not racist. They're, they're going to be like, why have you got this? You yeah. know, what did you do? <laughs> this, is but, um, this is such crazy so, stuff, so, you know? <laughs> yeah, so I, I got in touch with uh, with Lawrence and uh, met up with him. And um, uh, yeah, just, you know, we worked on a lot of uh, policy and a lot of ideas. And um, yeah, he's... He's a friend, um, and I'm not I'm not as involved with the the party anymore because uh, comedy started up. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like I've I've got a, a lot of time for you know what a lot of respect for what he's what he's trying to do, and I think he's much maligned and misrepresented. Sure. Um, but actually, running for election was was an interesting experience um, yeah, yeah. because the SNP have got a hugely well funded machine uh, behind them. Uh, we we didn't have that. Um, and uh, so the SNP could afford to send out, you know, multiple mail shots. We, we could afford to send out one mail shot um, and a, a generic one, not a targeted one. Uh, but basically every household in Glasgow would get a leaflet with uh, with me on it, you know, spelling out my, my policy and explaining why the, the hate crime bill is bad. <coughs> and um, uh, like the advisors to the party said, you've got to use a Scottish printer. Um, because it'll look bad if it's printed in Essex, because you know you've got to have the the yeah, yeah. name of the printer on it as part of the electoral rules. Um, anyway, there's some sort of screw up between the printer and the Royal Mail. Um, bear in mind that the people who own businesses in Scotland told me um, don't use a Scottish printer because the SNP controls so much of the Scottish economy. Uh, so much of it is, you know, a, big, a much bigger proportion of the Scottish economy is, is public sector than mm. than in the in England. Um, that you know, businesses in Scotland don't want to be seen to be doing something that's hurting the SNP. Uh, the Royal Mail uh, in Scotland, you know, that's a public sector. That's part of the public sector. That's part of the the government. Effectively, the SNP have been very clever at you know make, making parts of um, the executive, the you know, the public sector. Uh, bringing bringing them under 
uh, under government control, making them almost a, a branch of the SNP. So police, the police used to be broken up in, in separate areas across Scotland. Uh, yeah. Now they've just been centralised into police Scotland, and it's all, you know, sort of much more tightly controlled by the SNP. So then, when you know somebody who's spoken out against the SNP, like Marion Miller, they can send you know stormtroopers down there to terrify them in front of their children. Um, so basically, my my mail shot didn't go out, and uh, it was a screw up on on our part. Um, but it, uh, th there must have been some. I, I suspect I suspect something malicious some happened for that mail shot not to go out. I'm I'm just I'm just really fascinated because I like I spent a lot of time in Scotland <coughs> before, and I mean if you take Irish history or you take Sinn Fein or something you know which was you know essentially the political wing of the IRA which is you know which sort of holds twenty twenty five thirty percent of the votes in the last election and everyone else yeah. jumped into bed together to try and stop them getting into power now fuck knows what they would have done during the pandemic but there is a very particular line through Irish political history, through, you know, the civil war and all this kind of stuff. I, I just, what I don't understand is that for a lot of Irish people, now maybe not so much in Dublin, although I, you know, there is of course a percentage of that, the rep, the, the sort of the, the uh, historical lineage to, let's say the nationalistic, anti-imperialist, anti-English ideal is quite, like it's a very simple thing to observe. Um, I don't I don't understand how the SNP has somehow this sort of power over um, over Scotland that it that it does like maybe as an Irish person because you know there was bombings and there was whatever all this kind of stuff you know yeah I'm not going to claim that I was born in Belfast or something like this but there is a very distinct historical lineage which I don't really understand. I'm going to get pelters now from my Scottish friends, but I kind of don't really understand how they seem to have so much of a, is it an emotional romantic grip over Scottish people? I'd, or I'd, or just a simple fear of the Boris? I don't really understand. Yeah. I mean, it's the sort of perfect storm because uh, there's no opposition. There's no uh, yeah. organized, um, you know, credible opposition in Scotland. Like the Tories are probably going to get wiped out of the, the next election. Um, their, you know, their vote was basically based on not being the SNP. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, they don't have a, a strong leader. Labour have completely been, you know, just wiped out. And they used to have, you know, the Labour vote has really gone across to the SNP, um, yeah. which, which is a shame. Uh, Alex Salmon set up a, a new party called Alba, and uh, that didn't really, that didn't really um, work out. Bad, for, bad name. Um, Bad name. Yeah, 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 yeah. Isn't that it's like a brand of a shit TV that you get? In yeah, Argos. yeah. It's like a shit TV from fucking made in Romania or something. It's like it's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even worse, it could be made in Scotland. Yeah, like the SNP have got this thing. You know, they're a single issue party essentially. Um, so they have got this thing of uh, you know we're not the Tories. You know, we're we're for Scottish independence, and Scottish independence is held up as this. You know. Oh, if you get independence, everything's going to be perfect because England's ruining Scotland, and that's why things are bad. Obviously, if Scotland ever got independence, they'd quickly realise that England is the only thing uh, funding all the things that are failing in Scotland, and uh, and you know uh, the SNP would be voted out pretty sharpish. But yeah, they are a single issue party. They've also had fourteen years in power, so they've shown. Um, Thing is because they're funded, they're, they're propped up by by the UK government, which, depending on your calculations, um, subsidises them to the tune of uh, 
uh, 15 billion or 36 billion uh, beyond what the Scottish tax take is. Um, because they're propped up by, by all that sort of uh, Westminster largesse, they can paper over all the cracks. They can paper over all the corruption and all the mistakes that they make. Um, so people are haven't, you know, really had their eyes open to the fact that, and there hasn't been that, you know, that single catastrophic thing. A, a lot of, like you're saying, the, the life expectancy has been, you know, gradually decreasing. Uh, health outcomes are decreasing. Drug abuse is getting worse. Um, uh, education is, is getting worse. The, the public services are getting worse. The roads in Glasgow are shocking. You know what I mean? Um, but there hasn't been that that one cataclysmic thing that's uh, you know that's going to break. I thought the Alex Salmond inquiry could possibly have been it, but it, it wasn't. Um, so you know, in the background, because most people don't pay that much attention to, to politics. You know, the Sturgeon gives the appearance of doing an all right job. And you know, during lockdown, she had our daily broadcast, which she she managed to politicise and uh, you know make it make as a sort of selling platform for the SNP. So, yeah, she's, she's sort of she's she's played she's played a good a good uh, she's been dealt a good hand and she's played it pretty well. Yeah, my favourite Scottish comedian is Jerry Sadowitz. Yeah, mine too. What happened to him uh, on? You can't find anything of him on YouTube or something. Is is that the Jimmy well, Savile effect, down. or oh, he took it down? Is that what it is? Okay, he took it down himself apparently. So um, and it's it's a shame. Uh, he's he's a real perfectionist. So I've been to see him a few times, and I saw him once at the Leicester Square Theatre. This must be years ago now, like uh, yeah. ten years ago maybe. Um, and he was filming a DVD, and the show was amazing. It was uh, like just amazing. I was dying laughing, just dying laughing, and. Um, he uh, he decided not to put it out. He, he said it wasn't good enough. That's bizarre. So yeah. do you, so do you, you know he's a he's a perfectionist. But how did you then get involved? Sorry, I'm keep pivoting a few things. But how did then did you get involved with the podcast of the Lotus Eaters and all that kind of stuff? Just through the Lawrence. Oh, they just got in touch. Well, yeah, I had um, I had dinner with. Um, it was me, Lawrence, uh, Andy No, and Carl Benjamin. So very much a sort of axis of evil. Uh, meeting and uh, oh, that would, that yeah, like make, uh, that would make you Japan or Italy or which? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm trying to think who would be who. Uh, well, I can't, I can't see who would be who without being racist. But um, <laughs> but yeah, like Carl, I mean, I, I love Carl. He's a he's a um, he's a he's a very another very mischievous uh, mischievous person. And um, I, I love how he, you know, he winds he winds people up. I don't I don't agree with him on a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, but man, I I love what they've what they've done, and they're they're stepping in and providing what all all these people do are doing, um, like Lotus Eaters, Trigonometry. They're yeah. stepping in and providing uh, entertainment and a you know a service for people. I mean, Lotus Eaters is you know way beyond entertainment. It's like history and, and mm. politics and everything. Um, but they're providing stuff that for, that isn't catered for anyway. Yeah. Like if you turn on BBC comedy, it's uh, you know people dressed up as you know bananas or whatever trying to throw donuts in a, in a hat. Like you know, man, Chris or, Rock wouldn't do that. No, or what it's, it's ridiculous. Or, or, it's not. Or Frankie Boyle's uh, what is his his show? His terrible show. Oh, New World Order. Oh my god. Oh my god. Just what, so what, what, bad. And they don't they don't get that they're the ones they're the ones with the cultural power. They think, think you know, you've got these and they're all they're all Oxbridge educated. Yeah. The, the people like Sophie Duker, Oxbridge educated, 
yeah. incredibly wealthy background, you know, parents in media or whatever, you know, sort of like our path into into uh, comedy was. He was, has to sit. Know, he has to sit at home. He has to sit at home at night and look himself in the mirror and go, "What the fuck happened? What the fuck happened to me?" Or whatever. He how? But does or, he? Or does he? I don't know. He, he, think, he has to be. Does he think he's actually doing? Does he think he's actually doing the right thing? Because dictators, just, for example, just, dictators uh, convince themselves that they're that they're doing the right thing. You know, dictators convince themselves that they are the uh, savior, the you know, superhuman savior of the country while they're oppressing their people. Uh, so people, you know, construct narratives in their head to, to suit their own uh, suit their own situation. Um, so I think that's that's what he might be doing. But BBC comedy, man, it's it's a, it's a load of shite. But it's great. It's great that it is because then people go to my YouTube channel. I'm up to like twenty six thousand subscribers now. People come and watch my videos instead. Yeah, I, I mean, but do you find that like, um, I mean, do you do you? How easy is it to book or not book shows? I mean, are there enough clubs? in the UK that will just go, all right, like literally, um, you know by now you can plot a graph. We just ignore that club, ignore that club because the bookers won't have us and we just plot the ones that we like and we bring our audience. I mean, is is that kind of how it goes? With, in the heavy metal terms, in the music terms, there's a festival culture which is so big um, that literally if you're big enough, it doesn't matter. If you're a band that only brings 50 to 100 people, people might complain. But if you bring 800 yeah. people or 1,000 people, that's a lot of beer behind the bar. Uh, yeah. You know, nobody's cancelling Slayer, for example. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody's cancelling a Monomarth or whatever. You know, so money yeah. talks in that sense. You know, but for a, a comedian who's putting twenty-five to one hundred and twenty-five bums on seats or whatever you want to call it, I mean, is there? I mean, how much pushback do you get? To rather well, the thing is, if you go if you're doing clubs, if you're doing like, a club set, you're not really bringing the audience in. You're only bringing the audience in if it's your solo show. Right. And then you're, you know, you're pushing it on your social media. You're trying to get people in. Um, so, you know, I do a solo show about once a month at Top Secret Comedy in London. Right. And um, yeah, I mean, I, talk, but I mean, the, I mean, there's some places that don't book me anymore, like the Comedy Store, which yeah. uh, you know certainly used to be the sort of the one everybody wanted to to get into. Yeah. Um, they they don't book me, and that that honestly that genuinely pains me. Um, but I mean, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's because of uh, I don't think it's because of politics, or I mean, it might be because of politics. I think it's because the last the last day I died on my ass. So, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but man, I die I die on my ass like once a year, and it just so happened I did it at the late show at the comedy store. Right. Um, but I mean, top secret man, I, I gigged there. I gigged there last night, um, and that's in my opinion, and I think you know a lot of comedians' opinions, the best club probably in the universe. And um, if they, if they, man, if they ever stop booking me, I, I don't know what I'd do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I can still, I can still get plenty of gigs. Um, but I, I really want to focus on. I mean, I love, I love gigging. But it's there, if you, if you're a club comedian, there's, a, there's a sort of limit on you know where you can go creatively and also how much money you can make. Whereas doing YouTube videos, I'm talking about stuff different each time. <clears throat> and uh, it's fun, and then you know you you can make uh, you can make money, and also you know I'm getting married. I'm getting married in a couple of months, so I don't right. want to be driving to Hull and you know spending all night and getting back at like four in the morning, yeah, waking yeah. up my my wife and kids. You know I want to yeah, yeah. I want to just um, yeah do it in front of a camera in the living room and then uh, upload it and it's done. That's the I mean that's the complete uh, antithesis antithesis of. The musical thing with the band, um, the idea that uh, there's no streaming 
reality for bands or whatever. So the traditional, uh, you know, analog method of getting in the van, going out and tour, etc., which is now more kind of more or less removed. Um, that's the sort of lifeblood of being in a band or playing, you know, heavy metal, whatever you want to call yeah. it, that can't be replicated by streaming, um, which yeah. is sort of makes me very worried that these are like the, this is the final chapter for bands being able to, you know, if they, especially if they're climbing right. down and traveling, et cetera, and carbon yeah, yeah, yeah. prints come in, this, this kind of lifestyle will be, something that belongs in the 80s and the 90s or whatever, you know? Whereas I speak to yeah, a lot of comedians yeah. and they're and like, and oh, also yeah. with They're all right, but I like, oh, bands, on YouTube, you know? Yeah, and I think with bands, it's uh, you've got like four guys, you've got all that kit, you've got to get everybody together and yeah. in the same van. With, with comedy, it's much easier to sort of, you drop out, people dropped out, they got jobs as Amazon drivers or landscape gardeners or whatever, and then yeah. it's very easy to just, you know, then come back to comedy. Yeah. Um, so and and also with with comedy, it's much you know just even when times are good, even with no lockdown, it's you know there's much fewer overheads. All it is is a guy and a microphone. There's no yeah. you know you don't need like somebody tuning up a drum kit and all this expensive equipment and yeah. you know all these uh, you know four guys to to feed. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like uh, I think comedy's always sort of had that um, that. Cost so advantage. So you guys are just before us in the sort of holding pen that may be allowed out from lockdown. We're the sort of I think we've the last, the unicorn that's left, you know, in the in the holding pen that may be left out. To yeah, and I guess comedy, you know, comedy was easier to do in uh, in distance venues. So Top Secret had um, they put perspex feet between each row. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, reduced the capacity a bit. In other places, you know, you'd see it, you'd have, uh, you know, somebody here and then, you know, a gap of two seats and somebody there. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's harder to do that if it's, uh, you know, when it's music, people want to jump up and down, you of know, course. especially, you know, heavy metal. Uh, yeah, or, so, or whatever, yeah, or anything punk, rock indie, whatever, et cetera, even dance music. That I mean, yeah. even my friends who are into dance music and all that kind of stuff are like, look, we'll fucking, we'll hire a warehouse in the middle of the Midlands in Ireland um, bring a sound system and we'll fucking invite people by text, etc. Very hard to do mm. that with bands to find a place to go that is somehow under the radar and then go to everyone, hey, can you all turn your phones off? And you know, it's it's a rather, yeah. you feel like a rather endangered species, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I don't know though. Um, <clears throat> well, sir. Um, I think that's a good moment to do a pause. It's like an hour and 20.